From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCray. On this special Thanksgiving edition of Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll hear from three patients who have reason to give thanks. First, not your typical transplant. I thought he was joking at first. I, like... Wouldn't even fathom that this was a thing, and but then you realize how simple the idea is. It's genius when you think about it. It worked perfectly. How fecal transplant is used to treat C. diff infection. Then a new story of one woman's battle with flesh-eating bacteria. How alternative therapies, including cupping, helped her to manage the pain. And a more typical type of transplant, hitting the road to find a new heart. Three stories on how treatment at Mayo Clinic gave patients a new lease on life. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. In September of 2015, while she was attending college, Stephanie Bennett was suffering from nausea and diarrhea. And it hung around for weeks. When she got home in November, she was diagnosed with a nasty infection of the bowel called Clostridium difficile, C. diff for short. Now, they tried to treat the C. diff infection with antibiotics, but it didn't work. As a last resort, Stephanie sought help at Mayo Clinic. What finally cured her, believe it or not, fecal microbiota transplant, sometimes referred to as a stool transplant. Here to share her story and explain fecal transplant are the patients, Stephanie Bennett and gastroenterologist Dr. Sahil Khanna. Welcome, both of you, to the program. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. Stephanie, how do you feel? Uh, much better now. whole new person <laughs> after the procedure. Really? Yes. And were you sort of uh, amazed at the fact that, first of all, you got sick, and number two, that it hung on so long? Yeah. When it, I, I remember the day that I first started feeling symptoms. I just woke up. It was a Sunday, and I was like, ah, oh, like, I don't feel very, like, very good. And then I just started puking everywhere. Really? Yeah, it was. And that just lasted for way too long. And I was like, oh, this is, like, very weird. Um, then when I so went, so this went on for days. Oh, days, yeah, weeks, weeks, because it ended up going for from September is when I first started feeling symptoms, and mm-hmm. then I officially got the procedure done in March. Oh my gosh! Yeah, so that whole time I was losing a significant amount of weight because I was just getting sick all the time. Um, I had very bad, like constant diarrhea, which is it's just not. No, it's not, not good for a college bad. student. No, yeah, and especially being at school, it was uh, a a very stressful time. I have to commend my roommates for really helping me out because <laughs> I was in bed for a, quite a long time. And they would come and bring me Gatorade and water to keep me hydrated because I was just everything was going in one way and straight out the other. And so that started in September. And did you start antibiotics pretty quickly, or when did the antibiotic treatment start? Did you go to the health center there, or did you wait until you got I, home and saw that? Yeah, I'm one of those kids that I'm just like try. I don't like to go to the health center yeah. at my school, so I try my very best to wait until I can go to my um, normal doctor mm-hmm. back in Chicago. Okay. Um, so this was in September. I waited all the way until Thanksgiving break, which is quite a long time. So I you're know. vomiting and diarrhea from <laughs> September to Thanksgiving. Yes. My mom was not very pleased that oh, I waited that Stephanie. long. Were you going to class? Yes. And I was going to class, which is not the best thing. It was 
bad poor choices on myself. Um, well, I mean, but all hindsight, yeah. let's just let it go. She's yeah. fine now. Okay, so you started antibiotics at Thanksgiving time. Thanksgiving break was when I went home and I did a stool sample test and then it was the day after Thanksgiving that my doctor called me and said that you tested positive for C. diff. We need to get you on an antibiotic right away. So I did. Oh, actually, I started off with Flagyl. So I did the 10-day Flagyl, which was my body did not react very well to it. That was actually the lowest point of me having C. diff. It, I could not get out of bed that whole time because it was. <laughs> Are you still going to school at this point? Or had yes, you, oh still my going gosh. to school at this point. All right, keep going. And then so this now <laughs> brought us to winter break. And I went home, got another stool sample test came back positive. Mm-hmm. Then we moved to vancomycin, which is the second round, like Dr. Mm-hmm. Connor said, another round of antibiotics. Um, did that, did another stool sample test, came back positive. Did another round of vancomycin, still came back positive after that. And that's when my doctor was like, okay, we need to get you up to Mayo. And I was fortunate enough to be hooked up with Dr. Connor. Your new BFF. Yes, who <laughs> saved my life. It was night and day after the procedure. Well, that, that is sort of strange. Did, did the infectious disease doctor say, I, I can't believe this, or this is fairly common that people don't, uh, we can't cure people with the antibiotics you've had? Or what did he tell you? Um, well, I learned so much when I came up here. So when I first kind of figured out like what C. diff was actually like research on my own I like oh like this is like super contagious and things like that and I thought it was more rare but coming up here Dr. Khanna taught me that uh, it isn't as rare as you can imagine I believe you said that almost like every day people can come in contact with this bacteria mm-hmm. but your one's body can kind of just like fight it off where mine for some reason did not. For whatever reason, huh? You have no idea where you picked it up? No, the only idea is that I was in a hospital a couple weeks before that I started feeling symptoms, but we still couldn't pinpoint the time that I where actually is, picked it up. Is that the usual case, Dr. Khanna, that there's really no way of knowing where you contract the C. diff? That's true. So just putting everything into perspective, we see about 450,000 C. diff infections in this country every year. Wow. Half a million. About half a million. That's the estimates. And it was previously thought that C. diff only affects the elderly who are in the hospital and who have received antibiotics. Now, Stephanie is the exact opposite. It's a young person who has not received antibiotics because of something else before C. diff started and was not hospitalized. So we're seeing C. diff more and more out in the community. Studies have shown that it's in the walls of meat processing plants, water sources, food sources, another person's hand, uh, public restrooms. It's been isolated from everywhere. We're also seeing more and more young people who've not been exposed to antibiotics who get C. diff. study done from Olmsted County published a couple of years ago demonstrated that 40% of C. diff actually happens outside the hospital, and of those, 20% have not received antibiotics. So bring us to a point that if you have someone like Stephanie who has unexplained diarrhea and other symptoms, C. diff should be kept in mind. It doesn't only happen to the elderly who are in the hospital. We're now, now seeing more and more of this nasty bug outside the hospital. Do the antibiotics usually take care of the C. diff, or is that becoming that, that doesn't work at all? So the expected rate of recurrent C. diff after a first round of antibiotics is about 20%, because these antibiotics... Who, which are used to treat C. diff, actually kill the normal or the healthy microflora in addition. After two episodes... The, the microflora, the, the, the normal healthy bacteria. The normal healthy yeah. bacteria are also killed. In your usual state, you probably have anywhere between 500 and 1,000 different kinds of bacteria. And These, you need those guys. You need those guys, that healthy need, bacteria. You absolutely <laughs> need those guys because they help colonization <laughs> resistance sure. all the time. 
But after a second episode of seed, if the risk goes up to 40%, and after a third episode, it goes to 60%. So that's where your odds of getting it back over and over again and people getting sicker every time when they get it just keep on increasing. All right, Dr. Khanna, Stephanie said you saved her life. So she finally came to Mayo uh, in 2016. Is that right? Beginning of this year. What did you do that saved her life? So I'd say that we did uh, something called a stool transplant or fecal transplant to help uh, Stephanie alleviate her symptoms. Because if C. diff is untreated, it can keep making people miserable over and over again. Of the 450,000 people who get C. diff, the rate of mortality is about 29,000-odd people die from C. diff every year. So a lot of people die. Most don't, but a lot of people die. What we did for Stephanie was to correct the root cause of this problem. The root cause of this problem is not having enough good bacteria in your colon to fight against the C. diff. These medicines that are used for C. diff actually just kill the vegetative forms and not the spore form of C. diff, which actually tends to live in the body and it's left on the body's own ability to fight against it. So what we did for Stephanie was to take stool from a healthy person or a stool donor. Like there are blood donors, we have stool donors who donate stool and we were able to do a colonoscopy and implant that stool into Stephanie's colon to get rid of this infection. The incredible story. Ms. Stephanie Bennett, now you mentioned that you were in the hospital. Are you a nursing student? I no, I actually, uh, to clarify that, I work for, I'm a communications major, so I was okay. doing a project that took place in a hospital where I was there about six, seven times. Um, so that was the only type, but that was like weeks before, like maybe a month before I even started feeling symptoms. So that's the only possible, maybe likely scenario that I picked it up there. But again, we don't know for sure. It's always a good idea to stay out of the hospital. If <laughs> yeah. you can. All right, Stephanie Bennett and Dr. Sahil Kahana, we're talking about fecal transplants. We'll be back with a lot more and hear how they work and why they work when we come back after a short break. Plus, and we're going to find out myth or matter of fact, anyone can be a stool donor. Myth or matter of fact, you're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. We are with Dr. Sahil Kahana and Ms. Stephanie Bennett. She is a victim of a fairly common bacteria known as C. difficile. She tried antibiotic treatment and it wasn't successful. Her doctor in Chicago referred her to the Mayo Clinic where she ended up seeing Dr. Kana. And Dr. Kana was just explaining to us why he used a fecal transplant to cure her. And so in order to have that stool to use for that transplant, you Somebody's need to have a donor. Yeah. yeah, and so that brings <laughs> us to myth or matter of fact. Anyone can be a stool donor. Is that a myth or is that a fact, Dr. Khanna? I would say that's a myth. Not everyone can be a stool donor. Our understanding of the gut microbiome has increased over the last five years or so. We've known that a lot of diseases are associated with alterations in the gut microbiome. Common diseases like being overweight or obesity, diabetes, some neuropsychiatric illnesses, lots of GI illnesses like irritable bowel syndrome, inflammatory bowel disease, and infections like C. diff are all associated with alterations in the gut microbiome. We don't understand the cause and the effect uh, equation here, but what we do understand is that people who need to be stool donors in today's world need to be free of all these common ailments. So somebody who has to be a stool donor actually has to be a young person, has to not have any of these common ailments or be at risk of any of these common ailments that I just mentioned. And then also they have to be at pass screening tests so they don't should not be carrying any bacteria in their 
uh, colon, which could be pathogenic. So we screen them for about 20 different kinds of bacterial infections in their colon. And then we also screen them for other communicable diseases like HIV, hepatitis, and uh, syphilis. In addition, we screen them for a detailed health history and a travel history. So if you look at all the exclusion criteria, a vast majority of our population actually would not qualify to be a stool donor. A study done out of MIT demonstrated that less than 2.5% of everybody who applied to be a stool donor at a stool bank that has been set up in Boston were qualified to be stool donors. A stool bank. Is this a paying position? I mean, do you you have people who obviously want to do this, but do you get paid for it, I assume? So the stool bank in Boston, uh, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, actually does pay. We initially started with with a volunteer stool donation program, but after recruiting the same donors for a couple of years, we have a little bit of an incentive that we pay them for every donation. Stephanie, when uh, Dr. Khan has said, here's what we're going to do, a stool transplant, a fecal transplant, did you say, I'm sorry, come, what again? That's exactly what I said. (laughs) Why don't you just say, take this pill? (laughs) I thought he was joking at first. I like... Wouldn't even fathom that this was a thing, and but then the more you think about it, you realize how simple the idea is. It's genius when you think about it. And how did it work for you? It worked perfectly, yeah. Mm-hmm. And but again, when he first told me that, I thought it was like, oh, that's You're a real crazy, thing. Yeah. Well, so doc- how do you do the procedure? Yeah. Yeah. So for Stephanie, we used an anonymous donor. So we've got our own stool donor bank here, where we are able to take donor stool, process it in the lab, and have it frozen for our patients. We took an anonymous donor, Stephanie, underwent a colonoscopy after a preparation for a colonoscopy, and we installed the stool into the cecum. That's the last part of the large intestine where the small and the large intestine connect with each other. We take about, for every patient, about 50 grams or a little less than 2 ounces of stool, and we dilute it in about 8 ounces of salt water or saline. And we put all that stool in there, and then we quickly come out of the colon, leaving that stool back in there. Now, does it have to be fresh? I mean, are you able to preserve someone's stool for a certain period of time before you put it in? Yes. So in the past, we used to use fresh stools, but that was a nightmare if a donor is not able to produce stool on that day or forgets. <laughs> so we were able to, at Mayo Clinic, establish an anaerobic chamber facility. So we are now able to process stool anaerobically. Most of the good bacteria are anaerobes, so they die on exposure to oxygen. And then we are able to store it in our freezer. Studies have shown that it may be viable for up to six months. With the demand that we have, we never have to store stool for that long. We usually keep a running batch at hand. Stephanie, how long did it take before you could notice that you were feeling better? Probably three days. I noticed the second I went to the bathroom, mm-hmm. and the, your stool looks different. Mm-hmm. You feel better. You don't wake up nauseous. Because I can't tell you, waking up when I had C. diff was one of the worst things. Mm-hmm. I would lay in bed, and I just knew the day was going to be miserable because... I just already felt like I needed to throw up. Mm-hmm. And when day three or four came around and I didn't have that feeling, I was like, it's like it worked. I was so excited. <laughs> Dr. Khanna, is this only used for C. diff or are there going to be other applications? Because it, it is so simple. There, it, it would be great if there was other ways that this could help people. Yes, so for now it works for C. diff, works more than 90% of the times. There are other diseases that are being studied and under investigation. There are trials going on for GI diseases like inflammatory bowel disease, ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease. There are certain trials going on for diabetes. There are trials going for other rare diseases like primary sclerosing cholangitis. So a lot of that is at the clinical trial design and with all the diseases that are associated in, with alterations in the gut microbiome, microbiome-based therapies probably will become an adjunct 
to known therapies probably won't replace everything, but probably will be become an adjunct to known uh, medical therapies. So you call it a simple procedure, and I guess in a, in a way it is. But I mean, you have to. This, you said colonoscopy, so you take what we call the black snake, and <laughs> mm-hmm. all the way up, all the way over, and all the way back down to the very beginning of the colon, and that's where you in, insert the material, the stool. Yes. So we're doing it with a colonoscopy right now. That's clinically done. There are going to be other delivery modalities that are being tested, including pill-based delivery modalities and enema-based delivery modalities, which are in clinical trials right now. So more is going to happen in this field in the near future. So you can just take a pill? Could probably just take a pill in the future. Well, is this covered by insurance? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> big way. Is that is this covered by insurance? Yes, it is covered mostly by insurance. Sometimes we need to do prior authorization or pre-approvals, but cost model analysis have actually shown that with the cost of the medicines used to treat C. diff and the cost of work days that are lost because of C. diff actually is more cost effective than the pills itself. We're trying to cut back on the number of antibiotics that we give to patients in the general population. Is C. Diff, is, is a stool transplant going to come the first idea when someone is di- uh, diagnosed with C. diff? Absolutely. That's going to be a thing of the future. So there are going to be some trials that are going to be looking at that right now. I think what we need to realize is that we don't understand the long-term adverse events of fecal transplant. So it's not done as the first line at this time, but as we have more understanding of long-term adverse events and more data regarding efficacy for a first infection, it's probably going to become first line. Stephanie, you've become the poster girl for I, fecal transplant. How do you feel here. about that? Very exciting. You are on HBO, the I, HBO show. I was it. lucky enough to be on H- HBO Vice. You came and filmed um Dr. Khanna doing the procedure on me, and it was, it's kind of cool being a little celebrity around Mayo, but I do give Dr. Khanna full credit for that. I emailed him, and I was like, thank you so much for, hey, I owe this all to you, so. I'm, I'm not sure I should ask this in front of Stephanie, but she, I'm sure, knows the answer. If you've had C. diff once, are you more likely than the general population to get it again? Yes. You're more likely than the general population to get it again, but we've seen after fecal transplant that what I ask my patients is to avoid antibiotics, but after the fecal transplant, you should probably be like the general population as you're getting further away from the fecal transplant. The one reason that receipt comes back is with more antibiotic exposure due to another infection. Dr. Shives, we need to do the Paul Harvey rest of the story here because Stephanie took full advantage of her situation (laughs) uh, as being a patient and microphones and cameras in the room and tell Dr. Shives what you do now. I am a public affairs intern here at Mayo Clinic. Oh, good yes. for you. It worked perfectly. <laughs> I was, you worked your way right in here. It, I was very, very lucky. Because of C. difficile. Yeah. <laughs> I like One way or the that. other. Yes. Thanks very much, Stephanie and Dr. Kana, for sharing your story. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, how complementary therapies helped one patient ease the pain caused by flesh-eating bacteria. And later on in the show, a heartwarming heart transplant story. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. The big M, menopause. Menopause is a time in a woman's life when her periods stop. And Mayo Clinic's Dr. Stephanie Fabian says there are three facts every woman and her family should know about it. One, it happens to all of us, right? You are not alone. 
too. Symptoms can be brief, but the average duration of hot flashes and night sweats is seven to nine years, with one-third of women experiencing moderate to severe symptoms for 10 years or more. And the third thing women need to know about menopause is that there are treatments available for bothersome symptoms. You don't have to suffer through them. Now, what are the symptoms of menopause? We typically think of the hot flashes and the night sweats and the disrupted sleep. Some women also experience mood changes, joint aches, and problems with memory and concentration. But remember, there are so many different ways to manage symptoms now that we really can personalize or individualize menopause therapy. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Flesh-eating bacteria. Now, it may sound like something out of a science fiction movie, but for Heather Spaniel, it was a frightening reality. In her late 30s, she developed necrotizing fasciitis, or flesh-eating bacteria, and it came dangerously close to her heart. After multiple surgeries to remove the dead tissue, which included some muscle, Heather spent weeks in a hyperbaric chamber to heal her wounds. She recovered, but she was left with significant pain and limited range of motion. Physical therapy Therapy proved difficult and painful, but finally she found relief through acupuncture. Here to share the story from the Department of Integrative Medicine is licensed acupuncturist Sarah Bublitz and her patient, Heather Spaniel. Welcome both of you to the program. Hello. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Oh, Heather, we're so glad you're here and able to be here. Me too. You do not look like the typical patient that I have seen with necrotizing fasciitis. Um, so basically, long story short, I had a little nick on my knuckle that uh, strep went into my bloodstream and basically went straight to my neck and section of my quarter here. And when I you say know. quarter, you're talking about the the upper right yep. side of your chest. Mm-hmm. And this came from a small nick on your knuckle? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And somehow... Uh, the bacteria, was it strep A? That's the, the typical one that, that causes necrotizing fasciitis. Yeah. There are a lot of bacteria that can cause it, but that's the typical mm-hmm. one. Got in your bloodstream and yes. ended up in, on your chest, shoulder region? Um, actually, yeah, a lymph node in my neck. is. They didn't think it actually was possible that it would travel from my knuckle to my neck, from the, my body. So they had a hard time believing that's what caused it, so they kind of like, said, let's stop thinking about that cut Mm -hmm. and figure out where it came from. But um, at the end, after I was ready to be discharged from the hospital, they said that they're positive that it came from that wound in my hand. What was the wound in your hand? How did you get that? Do you even remember? (laughs) Yeah, I do. (laughs) Just because um, I was playing tag with my children and the neighbor kids, and I just looked down at my hand, and it was just like this tiny little abrasion, no blood, but just, just the pink tissue. And the next morning, it was swollen. It was really infected. We just didn't know what it was. Now, now most people who get necrotizing fasciitis will have a compromised immune system for one reason or another. They have kidney yeah. disease or they have diabetes. You had no, nothing, nothing else wrong. No, very healthy, and which was shocking. That's why they didn't believe I had it. Well, I can understand that. And then now I see an incision on your neck, just barely. Can mm-hmm. I see that? Is that the lymph node that was infected? No, the lymph node was back here, which is... Uh, believe removed and on the, everything on the so back the, of your on neck. the back of my neck and so it had spread across the back side of my neck when they were still determining what it was it kind of blistered and so this you know obviously it was dying on the inside and 
didn't really know that, but it then went down my back and then started wrapping around the front of it. I could feel it moving, and so I was like... It goes very rapidly, doesn't it? it? Yeah, it's very painful, and I had told Dr. Price that I could feel it moving into my chest, and so then he sent me down for an MRI to determine that it was actually spreading quite fast. So. And what, what happens here is that the, the bacteria release toxins that actually kill the tissue, and so, therefore, you can't get the antibiotics to the tissue because the tissues have lost their blood supply. And it, it progresses extremely rapidly. And the only way to get rid of this is antibiotics to get to the tissue that's still alive. And then you got to debride or remove the tissue that's dead. See what happens when you do a show with a doctor? Yeah. <laughs> that <laughs> well, helps. What did they have to remove? How did they finally get this thing under control? And what did you lose? The first initial surgery was just to determine that uh, Dr. Ensler was correct that it was necrotizing fasciitis. And so they had made that neck incision, saw that obviously the tissue was dead. And so they started debriding just as much as they could just right in the first incision. Then they did the MRI after I had told them that I could feel like this pain going down the back. So they had three different surgeons in with me and they took out uh, the rhombus. Rhomboid muscle, oh, yep. muscle mm-hmm. and maybe That's half, a muscle yeah, half that attaches to the shoulder blade. Trapezius, yeah. they had cut it in half. And That's the muscle on top here mm-hmm. that you can feel. Yep. And well, then, I mean, you, but you look so normal. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, well, <laughs> um, I, you, there's some... Did they do some, some reconstruction? No, or? they didn't. But, um, I mean, if you were really looking at me, you would see that this shoulder sits lower than this one, and it kind of falls in. You know, I don't have that muscle support anymore, and I lost uh, the major nerve in my arm, and so I'm not able to, like, fully raise my arm, or really at all, or Mm -hmm. put it back. So how Dr. Price described it is, like, rowing, swimming, you know, anything to, like, do a circular motion with my arm would be lost forever. Wow. Well, well, it's wonderful. I mean, we we often have to do an amputation to cure right. people of necrotizing fasciitis. Mm-hmm. So how you got no, through all this and look so great. Anyway, congratulations. Did you think there was right. a typo on our script? Well, I said, you know, they, they brought somebody else in. It's, it's not the real, this is not the lady who had necrotizing fasciitis. So you were left with a lot of pain. And Sarah, that's when you come into the picture. Yeah. So when Heather came into my office a year and a half ago and we met, um, it was a very emotional, powerful day for both of us, just meeting her and hearing her story and and thinking, you know, me thinking critically, what can I do to help her feel better? Because with, as an acupuncturist, there's many tools in my toolbox for helping patients feel better, not just acupuncture and needling, but doing cupping therapy and a few other therapies. And with the type of pain that Heather has, she feels a heaviness and uh, restricted range of motion in that right shoulder. And I knew that I wanted to help her relieve that heaviness And in such a large area of space, you know, it being the right side, the upper right side of her back, I didn't want to do needling. I wanted to do cupping therapy on the area to help relieve some of that pressure since it feels like a deep aching sensation. When I first met Heather, she was very guarded with her right arm. She didn't use it very often. And after the first few sessions, she was able to have better range of motion, less pain. 
Well, we know and cupping from the Olympics this yeah, summer. Exactly. I think before exactly. the Olympics, people didn't know what was going on, but Michael Phelps was having cupping performed on him, and so it looked like he had hickeys all over That's him. Right. Yeah. It's a big, great big bunch of hickeys. It's exactly what it What is like. happening when you do perform cupping on someone? So Heather's been doing cupping before it was cool, right? So she's yeah, the, yeah the, right. The I'm the Michael Phelps. Yeah, she's right. the Michael Phelps. Um, but really with cupping, what it's doing, it's kind of the opposite of massage. So with massage, you're kneading the muscle, kneading the skin, and with cupping therapy, you're pulling apart the knots. So it's working to relieve pressure by increasing blood flow, increasing circulation to that area, allowing better range of motion and less pain. So it's allowing that fascia to breathe. So when I see... Fascia is, is the covering over the, over the muscle, yes. between the fatty layer and the muscle. Exactly. Thank okay. you. And since Heather's anatomy is now more unique with the removal of her muscles, kind of skin, bone, organ system, there's no muscle in between, I wanted to make sure that she was safe with regards to our treatment therapy. And how has, with both acupuncture and cupping, Heather, it's been beneficial for you? It's been helpful, obviously. You agreed to come with her today. (laughs) Yeah, it's been really amazing. So uh, have they written this? Is this article in the medical literature? Is your story in the medical literature? I mean, isn't this highly unusual to have a cut on your finger and end up with necrotizing fasciitis, flesh-eating bacteria of your neck? Yeah, I mean... Wild. There's so many doctors that came into my room and said that they weren't going to do that surgery to open mm-hmm. me up to verify that that's what it was. You know, infectious Didn't disease. believe it. They didn't believe it. And just even for the sake of sharing the story with other doctors to mm-hmm. say, this is what happened. And it's a learning experience for everyone. It took so many people to finally believe Dr. Ensler. Incredible it's, story, Heather. Sarah, um, how can people, if they have pain that they can't address, I mean, we talk a lot about opioid, the opioid crisis in America. This is one of the options yeah, for acu- people to deal with pain. So at Mayo Clinic, there are several options for patients to get acupuncture. In the outpatient clinic, they're able to see us there with an order from their physician. So first, they must see a Mayo physician and then get that referral from the physician to see us in the outpatient clinic. I'm also at Mayo Rejuvenate Spa, which is at the Dan Abraham Healthy Living Center. Ooh, that's my favorite place. (laughs) So that's a cash-based clinic. The outpatient setting is insurance-based. All right. Acupuncturist Sarah Bublitz and Heather Spaniel, thanks so much for being with us. Great story. So glad you're doing well. Thank you. Thank you for having us. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll share one patient's journey to a heart transplant. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, according to the National Institutes of Health, there are about 3,000 people in the United States who are on the waiting list for a heart transplant on any given day. Now, wait times can vary from days to several months, and they depend on a recipient's blood type. They have to be matched to the heart that's available. And it also depends on how badly a person needs a new heart. Jim Dunbar had his first heart attack in May of 2014. After a second heart attack, he got an artificial heart and began waiting for a transplant. Well, he's here to share his story with us. Mr. Jimmy Dunbar, welcome to the program. Good to have you. You look so good. Thank you. It's good to be here. (laughs) So let's go back to the beginning. 2014, you were generally healthy, right? Yes, I was. And uh, you were at home, as I recall. Yes, I I just got home from a walk and I started to feel dizzy. And I was I was calling for my wife was next door at Richard Berger's house. One of our colleagues. One of her doctors. And he came over he actually came over to the house and he 
gave me CPR and he brought me back to life. What is it that you were feeling? Were you feeling upset stomach or did you feel like that clutching heart, Hollywood heart attack kind of thing? No, that's the strange thing because actually probably a month before I was having chest tightness and I was being stubborn. I thought it was just muscle strain or something. I didn't have that. I just had, had dizziness and I had, I think my left arm straightened up and then I just basically fell over. Okay, so they got you to the hospital. Got me stable, and then they said we could do two things. We could do a stent, which is a, is a simple procedure, just not cracking your chest open. And then the second option was to crack your chest open and do a bypass. And okay. I was afraid of having my chest opened up, so I said, no, no, let's go through the stent. And they put the stent in. They said there's a 99% chance the stent will be fine. There's a 1% chance it will fail, and I was 1%. Probably in the hospital three days. Okay. We went home. Which I thought was forever. Yeah. <laughs> and then I went home, and then I had my second heart attack. How, how long after? Probably seven days later. In that time, I should have died. I mean, I should have been dead. I think they did CPR. In the, the story is they did CPR on me for 45 minutes, which they're not supposed to do CPR for 45 minutes. But you're worth saving. But, yeah, yeah they, I, I actually... So was your wife there? All doctors I knew, and they, they thought they should save me. Yes, my wife was there. I was down at the emergency room. And they brought me up to the cath lab, and actually Dr. Guy Reeder, who's a cardiologist, he came in and he saw, I think it was, uh, I can't remember his name. He was on top of the bed doing CPR on me. For 45 minutes? For 45 minutes. And then Guy said, yeah, can I help out? And he helped out, and they... At the, I, I finally heard this part of the story. On that second heart attack, they did try to do a bypass. This time they cracked me open, they did a bypass, they did three or four bypasses, and that didn't work either. So I was I was um, pretty much a goner. So uh, basically your heart, they said, you know, your heart's not salvageable. My heart's not salvageable, said so they, they left me, actually they left me open. And so I was in, uh, they kept calling it ECMO, and I didn't realize what ECMO was until one of my friends said ECMO is life support. So I was on life support for 14 days, and they, the only option I had was an artificial heart. They put the artificial heart in me on, I think, May 17th, and then they, you know, they did a CAT scan before just to make sure I wasn't brain dead because that was a big deciding well, factor yeah. if I were to get an artificial heart. So they had brain activity. And they put the artificial heart in, and then I actually don't remember waking up until June 17th. So this ECMO is uh, extracorporeal cir- circulation. So it basically does what your heart does. But there's a big machine there that your your blood flows through, and it pumps it throughout your body. But you can't stay on, on that forever. So then you've got a, a, a backpack with yeah, a motor to, in it. Went to right? uh, um, the Companion. You go to Big Blue, which is a big 450-pound compressor in their machine, and then you go down to, um, we call him Little Gray, he's a companion, and then you go to the Freedom Drive, which is the backpack, which you put on your back, you put on your shoulder, it's a backpack, it has a, a smaller mo- a motor, and then you have to carry an extra motor with you at all times in case that motor fails. Oh my yeah, goodness. so he is carrying around what is functioning as his heart, and I remember you walking down the hall, and the, and the thing would make noise, it would go boom, 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 boom. <laughs> Because when I was in your over. room, I said, how do you sleep with that thing? And you said, well, you get used to it. It kind of sounds boom, like a boom. horror movie. Well, and you don't want to forget your bag. No, you, you shouldn't You don't want do to that. lose your back. I just have to ask, do you have a family history of a heart disease? or? Yes, my father had, uh, I think he had his first uh, heart attack in his 40s, and I was 49, so I thought I missed it, but... <laughs> It caught up to me. <laughs> it did. All right. So you've got the backpack heart that you're dragging with you everywhere, and didn't want that to be the rest of your life, evidently. No, it's. They say it's not a. It's not a. It's not a quality of life. It's. It's like 
Dr. Shive said it's it's very noisy and it goes with it all the time and it beats all the time and people say can't you just turn that off and they say well you really can't <laughs> well not really <laughs> I don't want to actually yeah so actually they they uh, people kept asking me aren't you going to miss that noise and I said I was really looking forward to getting rid of the noise but actually you do miss the noise a little bit because then you if you hear that you know you're you know alive it's going wow yeah. all right so now you're on the heart transplant wait list yes you're here in Rochester and, and as I recall, it took a long time. What to what ultimately happened? Well, I waited till December 27th or 28th, and I couldn't wait any longer. That was like seven months or six it months. It was like eight months eight because months. it was actually the first heart attack was in April. Then I had the artificial in May, and then it waited till December in hospital, which I go back to that three days was felt forever, but eight months feels a lifetime. A lot longer. Wow. And so then I couldn't take it anymore. So I could go out of the hospital and wait 1B, but I could wait two years on the list with that artificial so so I, uh, explain that again so if you're in the hospital then you're 1a you're, means 1A. you're at the top of the list well you're on it's, a different list oh okay there's but if always you leave someone the ahead hospital. of me on the list but i was yeah i was on 1a okay but if you leave the hospital you don't have as good a chance of getting a heart well you're going on a, on a other list where other people are out of the hospital waiting so it depends you know where you are but like you said earlier it depends it should it should matter how critical you are but and you know having an artificial i thought i was pretty critical <laughs> as do all the families of all of the people who are on that list yes of course. yes it's, yes it's a, it's a hard way to wait while you're waiting in the hospital you see people in your hallway get transplanted and so it would be it would be hard to you know yeah so that. then what happened so what'd you do so then the other option was uh, there was always an option to go to scottsdale and wait at uh scottsdale mail down there so the mail clinic in scottsdale is our we, ch- we chose that option so the only way to get there is to either fly and you have to take a whole team of perfusionists and doctors with you or you can drive yourself and we chose to drive ourselves so my wife just plugged me into the car and we <laughs> took off down the highway unbelievable <laughs> so what's it took you two days three days it took us about three days because we yeah. could only drive about eight hours a day because my legs would start to get stiffen up and I, I couldn't sit in the car for more than eight hours well, and the reason to go down there is because there was a better chance of getting a heart in scottsdale than in- well what i was told was when you went to arizona you got the whole state of arizona if you were in the male scottsdale and there's no other hospitals that do transplants oh, okay in the yeah. state so increased you get your the- odds yeah, is that well, a way to look at it? Logistics with the number of people down there, there's just so many more people and bodies running around that you Plus, have a better it's chance. winter, so yeah, go to Arizona. Right. Yes, I uh, <laughs> wish I would have went in like October. Accidents and trauma and everything else. So how long uh, did you wait in at Scottsdale? I got on the 19th of Martin Luther King Day, and then uh, basically five days later I had my first offer. Wow. And, and that was it didn't a good work. offer? Nope, it didn't work because <laughs> it wasn't up to the quality, and thank goodness it didn't work. It, it wasn't a good heart for me. And so then I had my second offer right after the Super Bowl. Super Bowl was in Arizona, so uh, the next day mm-hmm. I had my f- second offer, and that was the same situation. wasn't a good match once they saw the heart. Do you know anything about the donor of your heart? Yes. The third offer came actually two weeks after that, February 19th. After you get the transplant, you should write a thank you letter to the family just to, just to say thank you for your donation. It saved my life, and I really appreciate it. So I did that. And then it took them about two months to write back, and they said, you know, we're glad you're doing well and you're feeling good, and you're welcome. Oh, amazing. Well, you look terrific. So obviously the heart's working well. You're, I assume, on some medication to prevent rejection, but other than that, doing well? Yes, on anti-rejection for the rest of my life, but 
that's minimal to what I've been through. And yes, I did meet the donor family. We did meet a year anniversary to the date of that happened. Oh man, it was that amazing. Must, it was the most amazing. Pretty thing touching. Been pretty yes, touching. Very emotional. Hey, thanks so much for being here. You got a great story, and you look so well. And we're all really happy for you. Thank you, and for everything you do, Jimmy Dunbar. And that's our program for this week. For more information, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network for today's podcast and previously aired programs. Have a question about health and medicine for one of our Mayo Clinic experts? Tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. We'll be answering your questions in upcoming programs. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.